We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Jane Ricards, who is the former head of the Foreign Correspondents Club in Taipei. Jane, thanks for being here. Good evening, Keith. And by phone today, we're joined by Che Tingye of Ketagalan Media, which is a U.S.-based media group uh, covering Taiwan and elsewhere, a whole bunch of places all around the world. Uh, He joins us from San Francisco. Ting, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. On the show today, we're going to be talking about some historical revelations that were uncovered on Taiwan's efforts to develop nukes way back when. Uh, well, mostly stuff we already knew, but, you know, nukes, interesting. you got to talk about nukes. In the second half, we've got a, a fair amount of politics to sort through. The KMT's chairmanship primary is churning up some soul-searching in the party, as one would expect following uh, the recent drubbing in the election. And we've also got continued political wrangling over the transition of power. So we'll be taking a look at that as well. But first, Taiwan nabbed more international headlines just yesterday. Uh, Really on a roll recently, actually. Uh, Last week, it was fun in the South China Sea that made its way into the headlines around the world. This week, uh, it's the other Taiwan standard, a tech story. News broke yesterday that Japanese electronics giant Sharp has agreed to a buyout deal with Taiwan's own Hanhai Precision. CNA reports that if the $4 billion deal goes through, it would be the largest investment plan in Hanhai's four-year history and would also be the largest overseas investment project by any Taiwanese firm ever. But initial enthusiasm for the Sharp deal has apparently dulled only hours after those initial reports. Hanhai released its own statement, saying that it has received new information that needs to be clarified before the deal can go forward. Uh, So we're going to talk a little bit about those new concerns in just a second, but let's just, you know, pretend like the deal is going to go through. Let's start on a positive note uh, and uh, ask the question, what is the significance here for Hanhai? Of course, uh, the rest of the world is known as Foxconn. It's the world's largest assembler of iPhones. Uh, So this would be getting into a a slightly different business? Yeah, well, what struck me the most is not so much the significance for Honhai. It's mainly for Sharp. And um, it's the first, it's a very rare sort of foreign acquisition in Japan. Mm. And some reports were saying it's the first foreign takeover of an electronics firm in Japan. So I think historically it probably has more impact for Japan than Taiwan, though it is very important for Honhai as well. And it's kind of a cultural mindset in Japan. They're a little bit cagey about their uh, technology secrets. They're not too keen to cooperate with foreign companies. Yes, that's right. But also Sharp, I think, was such a sort of famous brand for so long. It was mm-hmm. kind of a household name. That right. Probably psychologically, it's probably right. a bit of a shock to sort of have it foreign owned if such acquisitions are so rare. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and so what is in this, if it goes through, what's in this for Hanhai? I mean, there's some technologies that they're interested in, I, I, I believe, especially the, the liquid screens. Yes, that's what I understand, that it's really all about Apple and producing um, iPhones, that mm-hmm. um, Foxconn will gain hold of more technology to make um, liquid crystal display panels yeah. for iPhones. And um, that would also be of benefit for Apple because Apple will stop relying on competitors like LG and Samsung. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so some uh, some real technology in there. 
now let's uh, pull things back a second uh, and and remember that the deal uh, has maybe hit the skids, uh, so to speak. Uh, so the announcement from Han Hai came only hours after the initial announcement from Sharp that they had accepted the deal. Uh, the, the, the headlines that we were seeing just changed on a dime. Uh, so what are these new revelations that Han Hai is talking about? What, what are they potentially worried about? Well, the Wall Street Journal said they've just obtained information that they've got um, 350 billion yen of contingent liabilities at Sharp, which is three, about 3.1 billion US dollars. Sounds like bad news. Yeah, well, that's what the Wall Street Journal is reporting. But um, there's some questions about whether Han Hai did due diligence, if this is the case, and yeah. um, how such a situation came about. So, You'd yeah. expect people to be aware of that on the books. Well, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, that's almost the size of the whole deal, really. So yeah. that's, that's pretty bad news. Uh, Ting, what, what, what do you take away from this whole episode? Uh, so my takeaway is that, um, you know, Hong Hai or Foxconn, right, has been, you know, sort of associated, uh, especially in Taiwan, as sort of, you know, a uh, doing business in China, having, you know, sort of seen as less of a Taiwanese company, but more of a Chinese, com- you know, global company based out of China. And so, um, you know, I, I think there was a lot of deals between Foxconn and the activities in China that, um, people in Taiwan are very uncomfortable with, right? And so now um, with this deal with Japan, I wonder if they're going to be seen, um, looked at with the same level of scrutiny as their activities in China. Um, you know, so there's definitely people in Taiwan who says, well, you know, to we need to do more deals with other countries um, away from China to diversify. And yet there are people who are saying, well, these sort of transnational deals are always, um, there's always a, a there's always a a part about them that's uh, you know harmful for the local economy. So I, mm. I'm kind of curious as to what um, the public scrutiny or even the government scrutiny is going right. to be when if they if, if they even make it to that stage. Right, and uh, we we will get a test of that because uh, regulators are going to be uh, evaluating the deal and they're going to have to sign off on that. So uh, we can look to see whether or not they approach this in the same way. Uh, that they have approached deals between uh, Taiwanese companies and and Chinese companies. So that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, Moving on, though, up next, uh, we've got some radioactive historical revelations to talk about. Uh, But uh, radioactive in the literal sense, uh, literally, these revelations are about Taiwan's nuclear weapons ambitions from the 1970s. Uh, Actually, probably won't be that much of a fallout from this. I've got really bad puns today. If you, you guys need to save me on my puns. They're, not, they're really not hitting today. Anyway, uh, on Saturday, U.S. magazine The Diplomat released an article that cited uh, recently declassified documents detailing ROC programs to acquire advanced nuclear technology uh, in the 1970s. Uh, also detailed in these documents is how the U.S. Uh, kind of put the kibosh on those efforts. Uh, so the basic story here, I mean, you can find all of this laid out in The Diplomat, but the basic story here is uh, Taiwan was working on this. The U.S. got wind of it. They said, don't do that. Then Taiwan kept doing it. And in 1978, uh, the Jimmy C- the Carter administration came in and said, no, seriously, don't do that. And uh, then Taiwan did a better job of hiding it away. But uh, not discussed at length in The Diplomat uh, article is... Uh, other facts that are known that, you know, similar projects were kept ongoing into the 1980s in Taiwan. And uh, 
later taken down by uh, a, a mole in Taiwan's uh, nuclear program. So it's actually a, a pretty interesting history, although, uh, as a lot of people have pointed out, and as uh, Jane pointed out to me right before we turned on the mics, nothing really new here. I mean, this is the first official acknowledgement from the U.S. side. Uh, you know, these documents were recently released, uh, but nothing that we didn't know was already going on. That's right, yes. Uh, so and, and any any significance, any bearing on uh, us people living in 2016? Well, um, I think it's pretty old news. Um, I think it's a reminder, though, that um, while the US encourages Taiwan to make defensive weapons, um, it won't sort of tolerate any form of... I mean, of course, a nuclear weapon's very extreme, but I sort of think that any sort of form of offensive weapon the US won't tolerate. And for mm. me, that was a reminder of that. It reminded me of an incident um, when I was reporting, I think, a few years ago in the Xiongfeng, I think, 2B, a surface-to-surface missile. And Taiwan, some people were arguing that that was actually a defensive weapon because it was preventing China from coming in. The argument was that if the Xiongfeng 2B could knock out um, radar bases and sort of installations in China, um, that would be much cheaper than buying anti-missile technology to use here to stop incoming Chinese missiles. But the U.S. saw that as as offensive and it actually slapped um, export bans on some components. So um, the U.S. has always tried to sort of restrict um, Mm. Taiwan's weaponry development when it's offensive. And obviously the nuclear example is a very extreme example, but yeah. Right. So kind of just a a reminder of how far that history goes back of the U.S. trying to kind of control uh, Taiwan's offensive capabilities. Yes, and particularly, obviously, after um, Taiwan's U.S. switched diplomatic recognition to China, it's Mm -hmm. always been sort of a defensive character. Right. And, uh, well, we think of this as very ancient history, and actually uh, the Ministry of National Defense did come out and say that Taiwan would not, has not, and, you know, is not going to develop or store nuclear weapons here. Uh, So, I mean, can we think of these nuclear ambitions as really something of the past? Is there there no uh, energy afoot to to, to move that forward at this point? Well, um, someone who worked for the National Security Council under Chen Shui-bian told me that he thought that Taiwan should get the nuclear bomb. But having said that, um, I think it is definitely something of the past, I think. I think that for several reasons. Um, first of all, I think that um, the main issue to do with the military at the moment is leaks. And I really, mm. perhaps this sounds naive on my part, but I really think that um, the media is so active here that if anything was going on, there'd be some sort of rumbling in the media. Mm. Secondly, the anti-nuclear They'd be movement. wandering around with their Geiger counters, yeah. sniffing it out. <laughs> they'd, they'd figure it out, yeah. Yeah, and secondly, the anti-nuclear movement mm-hmm. here is very, very strong. And any sort of damage relating to nuclear fission, whether it's the bomb or whether it's sort of nuclear power plant sort of explosion or something. It's, yeah, basically that's... Radioactive. Yes. The whole topic, radioactive. Uh, Ting, uh, do do you more or less agree with that assessment that uh, any kind of nuclear program in Taiwan at this point is a non-starter? My take on the nuclear bomb issue is that, um, well, there's a... I agree with Jane that there's a lot more political awareness over nuclear-related issues. Um, nuclear safety and and so uh, so forth. So I think there will be a lot of scrutiny if the Taiwanese government were to restart any type of uh, such program. But the other thing I was also thinking is that um, I mean there is uh, undoubtedly rising tensions um, in the East China Sea and the South China Sea. Um, if Taiwan were to get were to nuclearize, right? Um, you could imagine the response from the PRC. You can res- uh, imagine that Japan would have to get in. And, and do something, and um, you know, South Korea might react. So I think um, 
I mean, I I don't think it will get to that stage, but um, I could imagine a a world where um, you know East Asia and Southeast Asia would nu- uh, quickly nu- nu- nuclearize um, if something like that were to happen. Right, and uh, that's actually a concern that uh, I I read raised by some analysts is that perhaps uh, South Korea would be the first one to nuclearize, and then Japan and Taiwan would follow suit. Uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. This is we're just talking about historical facts here. Let's not uh, scare anybody with uh, the, these doomsday doomsday prophecies. Uh, rather than that, rather than scaring folks, uh, let's take a little break, cool our heels from all this nukes talk. When we come back, it's all politics that we're going to be talking about, and we'll be starting with the KMT's efforts to find some direction after their crushing defeat in January's election. That is all coming up after this. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Che Ting-ye and Jane Ricards. Jumping back in, the KMT, well, they're looking for a new party chair now that Eric Ju has stepped down. It looks like it's narrowed down to four people, four people registered on Monday. Uh, those include acting chairperson Huang Minhui, Taipei City Councilor Li Xin, uh, legislator Apollo Chen, and, of course, former Deputy Legislative Speaker Hong Xiu-ju. Uh, and the run-up to this uh, chairmanship election uh, is a very interesting moment for the KMT because how they choose their head is going to say a lot about how they're responding to that most recent loss in January. Uh, and so there's a lot of discussion going on right now, uh, trying to figure out what that response is going to be and what the party is going to try to look like uh, going forward. The party took on these questions very directly at uh, a debate that they held over the weekend. Um, and this debate was kind of organized by a younger, more reformist wing of the party that kind of wants to see uh, some new values get injected uh, into the framework, into the mentality of the party. Uh, now, very interestingly, though, uh, not at this reformist-minded group's debate was Hong Xiu-ju. Uh, and Jane, you were telling me that uh, you see her absence as very telling. Well, yes, I do, because she's obviously not interested in these areas of reform these young people were pushing for. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I, th- I do think that's telling. Um, what's also interesting is that Hung Shouju, according to reports, had the highest number of endorsement signatures at 80,000, mm-hmm. and I think she's probably got a good chance of getting it, which is a paradox because um, her ideas really diverge from that of mainstream Taiwanese society. Right. And uh, let's hit on quickly what some of those reform issues uh, that this group brought up. Uh, They were talking, uh, first of all, about the creation of channels for the participation of young people in the party. Uh, So ways that young people can get involved. Uh, The positioning of the Huang Fuxing Military Veterans Branch, um, kind of the old deep blue guard, uh, very associated, I believe, with uh, Hong Xiuju and and kind of her faction. faction, Mainland faction, yeah. Uh, they also talked about the handling of party assets, which we will get to in just a second, but let's put that off for now. And, of course, cross-strait relationships uh, and the, the KMT's core values. So they were really taking a strong look at uh, perhaps changing uh, around the KMT stance in some of these things. Uh, but, uh, Ting, I mean, 
kind of what we're hearing from Jane here is that uh, Hong Shouju not being there is a sign that she's not interested in all of this stuff. Uh, it seems like some of the party is with her on this one. Uh, do you see reform as really being in the cards for the KMT currently? I mean, if uh, I mean, it looks like Hong Shouju has the you know has has the most you know she's the front runner now and. You know, with these political de- debates, the frontrunner has everything to lose and nothing to gain by going to these debates, right? And so, um, you know, to me, it, 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 seems, it, it seems like the, the party is at, you know, it, it's time for them to choose, right? It's basically double or nothing, right? You either double down on your core, you know, conservative, you know, traditional values and, and traditions, or you basically say, okay, we're going to reverse all of that and basically start from scratch. Mm. So it sounds like you're almost saying that you, you don't want to read too much into uh, Hong's non-appearance. Uh, perhaps there, there, there might be some room for reform there, or do, or do you think that she really is going to double down? I believe she's going to double down. I mean, I, I imagine if she did go to the reform, uh, I mean, if she went to this debate, right, she would be questioned on all of these things, and um, you know, I, I find that I, I just can't imagine her, you know, responding and saying, okay, it is, you know, we, we, the, the party should, um, you know, advocate for closer ties with the, the country, the Chinese communists and to seek unification with the PRC. And I, I just can't imagine her advocating for those things other than, okay, well, but, you know, that's what we've always been doing, right? So I... Mm. I definitely feel that um, she 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 made a political calculation not to show up at these events, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, and I think she's betting on the fact that even if she doesn't show up, the party would um, eventually go her route. Mm. Uh, just to give folks at home kind of a sense of the mood in the room, what they were talking about on Saturday. On the one hand, uh, we had legislator Apollo Chen with this quote uh, that was translated by the Taipei Times. He said, uh, the KMT has been championing its similarity with China, but failed to uphold its differences. Uh, so kind of a conciliatory note right there. Um, a lot of the folks in attendance were emphasizing, you know, that they do support strong ties with China, but were maybe uh, pulling away from some of the strongest deep blue rhetoric right there. Uh, but we, you know, we, we, we wasn't all reform minded. We, we did hear some uh, folks supporting more traditional stances, such as uh, this quote from Taipei City Councilor Li Xin, who said, if the KMT says that the ROC is Taiwan, basically saying ROC equals Taiwan, not just the ROC is in Taiwan, he said it would be shame it on its ancestors. And then he asked, was the ROC born on Taiwan? So, you know, you can get a sense from those two quotes. There is a bit of a tension uh, that this party is facing as it sorts all this stuff out. Another area of, uh, of tension, even beyond uh, the identity question itself, uh, is this issue of party assets. Uh, it was raised at the uh, debate on Saturday, and it's been raised since then by the DPP. They've uh, forwarded a bill um, to, uh, well, it's a bill on all party assets in Taiwan, but I think it's pretty clear that it's uh, targeting the KMT's own assets, which is kind of a historical holdover uh, that the KMT has been in possession of for years and years and years. Uh, it's known around the world as one of the richest parties in the world. Um, and the KMT blocked that bill. Um, so do, do do we see these party assets bill uh, as something that the KMT is really ready to take on right now, Jane? 
Um, I don't think so. I think that there is calls within the KMT to sort of look at the issue of party assets, but I think that it's fairly human, um, whether it's you're talking political parties in Taiwan or elsewhere. You know, if other people criticise you, of course you go on the defensive, and I think the KMT might look at the issue of party assets. I think that's much less likely if Hong Shouju were to win the chairmanship. Mm. I think there are calls in the KMT to look at the issue of party assets, but I don't think they want to be dictated to by the sort of party which just defeated them. Right. I, I mean, is, is, is there anything really to be gained uh, if, if they do get rid of these assets, Ting? Do you think that if they, uh, the KMT leadership turned around and said, you know, we're going to get rid of all the ill-gotten parts of this and uh, take a big chunk out of our war chest, uh, do you think that that would really be a net gain for the KMT? Um, I believe so. I mean, I, I just just sort of the goodwill that it'll generate with the um, with the the, the the voters, the electorate. I think that in itself is something. If I were the KMT chairperson, I would uh, very seriously consider. Um, you know, of course, I I don't think that's likely, given that a lot of these assets are. It, it, it's not just we're not just talking about um, money that's you know sitting in a bank account that they can sort of just write a check and. You know, hand it over to somebody else, right? We're talking about, um, you know, these these long-term crony networks with businesses and with you know local, you know, factions and you know and, and things like that. So I, um, you know, if, if reformers uh, do take control of the party and um, wanting, you know, to to send a message that okay, we're taking a very clean break from the past. We're a completely new party now. Um, you know, or even to say we're going back to our old, you know, sort of revolutionary roots um, to serve the people, something like that. You know, I think that would definitely earn them a lot of uh, goodwill with the voters. And yeah, and and just to give uh, folks at home maybe a better sense of why this is so difficult uh, for the KMT to deal with, uh, Jane, can you talk a little bit about uh, where these assets come from and 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 really? Uh, how deep the history runs here. My understanding is they were appropriated from, um, many of them were appropriated from the Japanese colonial government. Mm. So they actually belonged to the people. They were state assets. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, government buildings, but the KMT claimed them as their own and later sold them. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, I mean, there was a sort of example where, um, like, you're talking about uh, the, the Shinko Miskoshi buildings on uh, near Zongsan Station, right? So that, that used to be. Um, land owned by the Japanese colonial mm. government, and then the KMT took over, and then then mysteriously, you know, it became uh, the Lianzhan family's land. Right. So, I mean, just I think our listeners can hear in that description. It's almost stuff that the KMT really doesn't want to think about at this point, and 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 releasing those party assets would kind of force uh, a rehashing of a lot of that history in a way. Yes, but I I think that at this point in time, I I think the KMT definitely can't avoid this. Mm. I think the public expects it too much. The DPP expects it too much. I think the issue is on whose terms and Mm -hmm. how much historical rehashing there'll be and how much declaration of assets there'll be. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, the KMT will probably will respond to the public and the DPP, but I think it wants to do it on its own terms, and that's the problem. All right. Well, uh, moving on, but sticking with politics... We had two kinds of transitions to talk about this week. One concerns history, that being transitional justice, uh, that is continuing the transition from the martial law era and dealing with past historical wrongs. The other being political transition, of course, referring to the more current uh, sticky wicket that we're all in, transitioning from one president to the other. So uh, let's start with that one, the more current one. Uh, And we heard a lot about this week about uh, proposals from the DPP 
for a new transition bill that would basically explain uh, how we're going to deal with this situation of uh, KMT administration still in power, DVP legislature now in power, just got into power, uh, and and how uh, that KMT administration is going to act during this transition period. Uh, And a lot of what this is aimed at is curtailing what the Ma administration can do while they're still there. Yes, exactly, Keith. And um, I think that two points of concern is, first of all, that Ma has sworn that um, he said caretaker is not in his dictionary, Mm -hmm. um, which... We won't so, go into that in terms of semantics. Dictionary. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And secondly, he took um, this unexpected trip to um, Taiping Island in the Spratlys, despite the US saying that it was extremely disappointed. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that um, Tsai Ing-wen wouldn't go with him, um, or she was invited, or the DPP was invited to send a representative, they didn't go. And I think Ma's policy on the South China Sea is different from that of the DPP. So it sort of raises all these questions as... Does Mars, even though constitutionally Mars allowed to do that, did it really have any legitimacy when the majority of popular opinion supports the DPP government? Right. Well, that's been the question for a while. But let's get into uh, what are the specific proposals that the DPP are, 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 are bringing up? What are they saying that uh, under this legislation that they're proposing, what are they saying that the Ma administration would not be allowed to do? You know, there, the law um, provides for... Um, committees, of, you know, transitional committees and um, offices for the president and vice president-elect. Um, but the more controversial items um, speaks to, for example, the president, um, the current president is not allowed to enter into treaties with foreign countries um, and is not allowed to enter into agreements with uh, China. And then um, there are other um, provisions where um, uh, you know, policies or actions deemed as "quote unquote" controversial um, can be uh, stopped, or can be reviewed by the legislature, or even vetoed by the president-elect. So, um, you know, the, these are, the, you know, in, in my opinion, the more um, controversial. Uh, terms of this bill. Right, because that's really where we get into constitutional crisis territory. Uh, If the president is afforded certain authorities under the Constitution, you can't legislate that away, uh, right? Uh, I believe so, and um, a lot of my, um, a lot of people I spoke to in the legal field seems to agree as well. Um, You know, as much as um, people might not like the current president, um, he is still the current president, right? And so, um, in my opinion, what's really driving this uh, problem is this four-month-long transitional period, right? Because, um, you know, you're, if you're thinking about a real trans- transitional period, it's, it, it's basically, okay, well, you know, you, you, need, you need time to pack up, right? You need time to, to get, get your things in order, right? You need time to hand things over, right? And so, um, you know, but that does not take four months, right? And so the government still has to function, and... Um, the president, sitting president has constitutional powers that he or she needs to exercise, right? And so I think a lot of people are saying, well, now the DPP and also the new power party is going after the current president, right? So by 2020 or 2024, um, you have a opposition party president-elect, right? And so what are you going to do then, right? Are you going to, you know, give up your constitutional powers to, you know, to somebody who's, um, in, in effect, not really a government official at all, right? The president-elect is basically still just a normal citizen of the Republic of China, right? And to give this person um, you know, almost basically final veto rights on anything that the government does, um, you know, could be very dangerous 
Yeah. Uh, puts us in kind of a weird constitutional limbo-y kind of space. Mm. Do you, J- Jane, I'm curious. I mean, do, 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 you, do you see... Do you think that these moves that we're seeing from the DPP, are they reactions to actions that Ma has taken uh, over the last couple of months? You know, you, t- you talked about the visit to Taiping Island, and uh, or, 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 or did you think that this was in the offing from the get-go? This was in the offing from the get-go. Um, Tsai Ing-wen mentioned the transition bill the day she was elected, but um, just reporting generally, I've heard lots, there's been suspicions for at least two years that about this sort of four-month four period that Ma would try funny stuff. Mm. And um, I actually even heard it overseas from some journalists who are based overseas. They've, mm-hmm. they've asked me about it and said, oh, I heard that Ma's, you know, that Ma might try and do it. I was sort of saying, no, I don't think so. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's, I think there's been a lot of unease about this period for quite a while. It's not just mm-hmm. a recent thing. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, it's kind of a strange place to be in, but it gives us something to talk about. So I guess for the next couple of months, we are going to be uh, really heavily on the transitional period beat. Um, Interesting stuff right there. Moving on to the other kind of transitional justice that we were talking about just a second ago. Uh, President-elect Tsai Ing-wen has announced plans to create a mechanism to deal with transitional justice. That is, of course, uh, one of the campaign promises that she made. And when she's talking about transition transitional justice, uh, she's referring to uh, taking a look back at some of the wrongs committed, some of the human rights abuses committed during the martial law period. But uh, the relevance this particular week uh, actually has more to do with going forward, uh, what are Taiwan's national symbols going to be? And uh, caught in the crosshairs this week, uh, DPP legislator Gao Zhipeng uh, triggered a lot of criticism uh, from the KMT following his proposal to end the practice of saluting to the portrait of Sun Yat-sen during official ceremonies. Um, now, Sun Yat-sen is one of the ROC's relatively popular historical figures, uh, so it's a little bit different for him to be singling out Sun Yat-sen rather than, for example, Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, and the KMT has been very quick to criticize this move as uh, something that's kind of stoking ethnic tensions in Taiwan. Jane, uh, where where do you think that this is coming from? Uh, Is this kind of a long-seated issue that the DPP has been planning to take on, or or is this really just this one legislator who decided to say this? Um, I think this has all the hallmarks of um, the Chen Shui-bian administration, and I think that was very telling when um, the KMT um, chairman candidate Huang Minghui she sort of she responded to this by challenging Tsai Ing-wen and she said, can Tsai Ing-wen please clarify whether it's her policy and or mm. not? And if not, can she control the DPP legislators? Mm-hmm. And I think that Huang saw a sort of weakness in the DPP's position that um, I don't think – I think Tsai is very pragmatic. Yeah. And um, if you can see what she's done recently well, – part of her efforts is to promote an office for external trade. Like, it seems like she wants to get straight into the regional integration, things like that. And all that sort of very ideological stuff about reshaping culture, tearing down icons that the KMT absolutely loves, I think that's very much to do with the Chen Shui-bian administration. And from what I read in the media, um, Gao Zhipeng, legislator Gao Zhipeng, sort of suggested this. Um, So... Whether it's been long in the planning or not depends on what I think who in the DPP you talk to because mm-hmm. some are probably yes they're waiting to do this once they get in right. power but I don't believe this is the policy of saying when I think she wants to focus on jobs right. and the economy and more pragmatic things right 
so what Jane's saying right there, Ting, I mean, do, do, do you see this as a, a widespread view in the DPP right now that a, a lot of legislators are going to get on board with and promoting? Uh, or, or, or is this a more narrow thing that uh, perhaps we're going to put behind ourselves relatively quickly? Well, I think it's a question of priority, right? So um, I I have no doubt that if there's no you know there's no controversy over this, or if um, you know there's you know basically nothing else that the DPP administration uh, you know should be working on, then yeah, I think most DPP legislators would say, you know what, let's just get rid of it. Um, so the the thing with Sun Yat-sen is, um, you know, I think it speaks to a broader question of what to do with the pre-1949 ROC history that's ha- that happened on the Chinese mainland, right? So, um, you know, a lot of the criticism of Sun Yat-sen is that, I mean, he's, you know, hardly ever been to Taiwan. You know, he transit- transitioned and transited in Taiwan a few times. Um, when the ROC was founded in 1912, uh, Taiwan was part of Japan. And, um, and you know, so... So and, and I think there's a lot of you know stuff going around online now that's trying to dig up some uh, you know some gossip some dirt with uh, on on Sun Yat-sen as well. So I think um, it definitely ignited um, you know a, a little bit of a debate over whether or not people should come to see Sun Yat-sen as the father of their country as the founding father, right? And so if you're asking that question, then it's well, okay, he which which country is he the founding father of, right? And so I think um, there's definitely a lot of um, sort of, I won't, I won't say pent up, but there's a lot of underlying um, debate and controversy that's going into in, into that into this question. Well, but yet, I think for the more pragmatic, more the, the more pragmatically minded um, politicians, right? They're um, they wouldn't see this as a priority, right? So this would be, you know, definitely down, um, you know, pretty far down the list mm. compared to um, you know economic reforms or um, you know tax reforms and things like that. I was just pointing out about what you said about identity that actually boils down to Taiwan's basically identity with Sun Yat-sen. I mean, as you said, Sun Yat-sen had very little to do with Taiwan. So it goes back to the question, is Taiwan part of China or not? Well, that's why it's a big can of worms now, isn't it? Uh, Yes. But um, again, I I personally think that Tsai Ing-wen wants to promote reconciliation, despite the fact that she wants to push a bill about the party assets. And I, I don't really think that... This move about Sun Yat-sen is really tying Wen style. All right, and we uh, will let that point stand right there. Meaning that we are moving on to our final topic for today, this one being our podcast bonus topic. And once again, we're sticking with our tradition of not making terribly funny topics. Uh, this one is more on the environmental end of things, but it involves a festival, so I suppose it's kind of on the lighter end of stuff. Uh, the festival... In question is the Pingxi Lantern Festival. Uh, very, very iconic photos come out of this thing every year. Uh, that's the one where you see the images of those glowing f- uh, lanterns that are lit up, float up into the sky, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. A very beautiful sight, uh, but every year we also, uh, right after that festival takes place, as it did this week, by the way, uh, after it takes place every year, we hear a chorus of environmentally-minded folks saying, hey, maybe it's not such a great idea uh, to be releasing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lanterns into the sky, because, of course, they need to come back down. And Pingxi is littered with these things literally every time uh, this thing takes place. 
In fact, this week、uh, it got a little bit organized. A coalition of environmentally minded type folks, including the Wild at Heart Legal Defense Association, the Taiwan Environmental Protection Union,、uh, the Taiwan Watch Institute, and many others, banded together to make an official statement calling on local. Uh, political leaders to kind of not end the thing, but put some restrictions on it. And、uh, I thought it was pretty interesting because the way that this issue usually gets framed is traditional culture versus environmental concerns. But what these groups were pointing out this week is they were saying that that's kind of a false narrative because in a lot of ways、uh, the most environmentally destructive practices that are going on. Are not like ancient culture that we're talking about here. They're practices that really started in the last ten years or so.、Um, you know, this this tradition of having this festival goes back a ways, but the tourism end of things, the commercialization of this,、uh, is something that really only started back in two thousand three when the Lantern Festival became one of the Tourism Bureau's twelve national festivals, raised its profile, got a whole lot more tourists involved, got a whole lot more commercialization involved,、uh, and that. A meant more people were setting these lanterns off, and B、uh, meant that these lanterns、uh, were not made in the traditional way. They've gotten a lot bigger.、Um, the、uh, kind of fuel that's been used in them has been different. The paper、uh, that is used to construct them. Uh, is now treated in、uh, different ways to make them、uh, water resistant, and those chemicals are not the best for the environment.、Uh, a lot of them are made with metal now, which is obviously not biodegradable.、Uh, so a lot of new stuff is involved in this thing that isn't necessarily、uh, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with culture. Culture.、Uh, so,、uh, Ting, I'm kind of curious for your take on this.、Uh, you you grew up in Taiwan. Is the Pingxi Lantern Festival something that was a part of your childhood? Uh, no, not that I can recall, but you know I have a pretty sheltered life. So, what like what do I know?、Right? <laughs> do you have any emotional?、Oh, I, I do. I do know that it's one of the things that、um, my friends here in the United States ask about when I tell them, you know, you should go visit Taiwan.、Like, oh yeah, that Lantern Festival thing. Yeah.、So. Do you do you have any emotional attachment to this thing? If it if it never happened again, would you shed a tear?、Mm-hmm. Uh, I might shed a little bit of a tear, but you know what I would say is,、uh, you know, kind of the lingo in San Francisco goes. Right, I think it's right for disruption.、Um, you know, I I don't I I don't see why you know there isn't a startup right now in Taiwan working on some sort of solutions for this. I mean,、mm. you know, I would guess it's pretty commercially you know lucrative and. I could, you know, I can imagine them getting some investor behind something like this. Well, I think it was the Ministry of Culture. I'm not exactly sure. They they tried to get、uh, they tried to make a computer program where you would have a little animated、uh, prayer lantern that you could on a computer. You press a button and your prayer goes up in a little animation. I don't think that that's、uh, really taken off, so to speak. Well, I mean, Taiwan is. I mean, there. There is not a shortage of chemi- you know chemical engineers and material、mm. scientists in Taiwan, right? I'm sure they can come up with something that the environmentalists can get behind.、Uh, and 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 Jane,、uh, you you've covered these festivals in Taiwan before, so you're pretty familiar with this stuff. Yes. Well,、um, what what just came to my mind was just the Yenshui、um, Beehive Fireworks Festival and how people actually have to wear protective clothing. So if you're talking about harm to humanity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the fireworks are actually directly shooting at you, and well, you're advised with helmets. <laughs> in that case, I think it's almost more、yeah. fair because we're not、uh, unleashing things at Mother Nature; we're shooting directly at humanity. <laughs> or so that's a fair fight, in my opinion. Yeah, probably. <laughs>、uh, I mean, I mean, do, do, do you have strong opinions about this thing?、Uh, does- um, look, I just think they're getting. 
more ostentatious mm. each year and with that they're getting uglier. And mm. that monkey, I think there's a big monkey, monkey lantern which is leading the town. Yeah, it's just pretty ugly and just a simple small lantern. It's, well, that's it's, a whole different controversy. Yes. Uh, is, uh, have you heard about the monkey gourd? Yes, that was that was one of the the the, the designs that won the award or the yeah. won the design for the the main lantern at one of these yeah. festivals. It was shaped yes. like a giant gourd yes. with a monkey face on top. Yes, not the best looking thing. Yes, yeah, no, yes. We, we're in, over here. We're in a, we're we're looking at um, you know we we are we are dying to see a movie made Godzilla style, right? <laughs> the, the monkey gourd versus the you know the the yellow ducky. Yes. <laughs> I could sign up to that. All right. Yes. Who would win? My money's on the duck. My money's definitely on the duck. But that yeah, the is... Board got, the board's got green laser shooting out of its body. <laughs> uh, all right. This thing writes itself. We're going to have to put... Yep. So many cottage industries are opened up by this controversy. On the one hand, uh, for the uh, material engineers, they can solve our environmental crisis. For the movie industry, we just have a new plot. Perfect. <laughs> it's a great day for many industries in Taiwan. Uh, But for us, we're going to have to leave it there. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m., although this week, obviously, it's broadcasting a little bit later in the evening, as it will uh, next week as well, I believe. Broadcast here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, and we've just started posting to SoundCloud, so if you search Keith ICRT, you can find it there as well. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let's us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Jane Ricards. Thank you, Jane. Thanks, Keith. And by phone, we have Che Tingye. Thank you as well. Mm, thank you. And actually, if I may say something, I um, just want to wish all the listeners um, a uh, reflective um, 2 to a weekend uh, this weekend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's uh, certainly a moment that uh, deserves reflection. Uh, the 69th anniversary uh, coming up, a, a number of books coming out as well uh, to mark the occasion. Uh, for people that are not familiar with the history, uh, I uh, interviewed the author of Green Island, which is a novel about that period, uh, and uh, I highly recommend that book as a, as a way to get more engaged with that history. So, uh, absolutely something to be reflected upon. On that note, I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Uh, See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.